every single marketer and every single brand should be attempting to earn a disproportionate share of conversation. If you work for an organization where they say, bring us a chart that goes up and to the right, you have a challenge. Half the money I spend on advertising is wasted. The trouble is, I don't know which half. I am here to inspire you, to excite you, to motivate you, to transform you, to energize you. Hello, and welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. This episode features an interview with Heidi Bullock, CMO of Telium, a company that connects data from all different sources so brands can better connect to their customers. Prior to Telium, Heidi was the CMO of Engageo and Global VP of Marketing at Marketo. On this episode, Heidi talks about what it means to be CMO of Telium, why the rise of data-driven marketers is so important, and her top do's and don'ts for customer event marketing during a pandemic. But before we get into it, here's a brief word from our sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com. If you are a B2B marketer who has always dreamed of knowing when a qualified prospect is on your site and being able to talk to them instantly, now you can. Learn more at Qualified.com. So please enjoy this interview between Heidi Bullock, CMO of Telium, and your host, Ian Faison. Welcome to Demand Gen Visionaries. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios, and today I am joined by an amazing guest. Heidi, how are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining the show. Today we're going to be talking about your background. We're going to talk about Telium and all the really cool stuff that you have going on there and uh, much, much more. So let's get into it. What was your first job in demand? My first, well, so I feel like if you're in marketing, you're always in demand, right? You're always in sales. But I would say my first official role was at Marketo when I joined the company in 2012. And my title was demand gen director. So that's that's pretty official. That, that's very official, as, as official as it gets. Exactly. And so flash forward to today, Tell me about what it means to be CMO at Telium. Yeah, to be CMO at Telium to me is somebody like I think of a lot of my role as setting direction for the marketing team in the company. I think of it as very much not only externally facing, but internal as well. Like what do people think marketing does internally? It's it's equally important, I think, today, especially because a lot of your listeners are, are faced with, you know, we have the great resignation. So how do you keep people excited internally and pumped up on your brand? And I think a lot about creating preference. I think that's that's a big part of what marketers do. It's like everyone has tons of choices. And so how do you make sure that your brand is sticking out and you're creating preference? That's what I think a lot of my role is at Telium. That's interesting. I like that framing, thinking about preference. I haven't I haven't heard that before. Yeah. An analogy I think a lot about is when you go to the grocery store, we all do this, right? You're, you're like, yeah, I, I feel like some ice cream. And you look at the ice cream aisle and there's no shortage of options, right? And that's that's true in B2B software. That's true with many consumer brands. And so as a marketer, we want to think about, I think especially in B2B, a lot of folks think about sort of the factual elements of things like winning over somebody's mind. But to me, it's also like winning over their heart, right? Like, why would I pick you over somebody else? And I think some brands have done that really well. And so preference is huge. It's a big part of what marketers should be thinking about. Okay, let's get into our first segment, the trust tree. With the knowledge you've been given, you are now on the inside of what I like to call the circle of trust. What, I thought we were in the trust tree with in the nest, are we not? This is where we go and feel honest and trusted, and you can share those deepest, darkest demand gen secrets. 
Okay. Taking a step back, what does Telium do? So Telium, we are a company that uh, connects data from all different sources so brands can better connect to their customers. So we have a customer data platform, but I think the thing that we are in simplest of terms is we help brands create better experiences for their buyers through data. That, that is our number one strategy. We've had a CDP since 2013. So a lot of uh, big B2C companies like us because they feel that we really drive impact and we're very trusted. So, but I will say, and we'll get into this in your section, the CDP space is definitely very competitive, very similar to when I got into marketing automation. And so who are your customers? Who are the types of folks that you all are working with? Yeah, so we're really lucky in that we cross a lot of different types of verticals. So you can imagine anyone in retail. We have a lot of the biggest retail brands. We have travel, hospitality, financial services, healthcare, any any type of company that is dealing with large volumes of customer data. And if you think about it, that's an area that is only growing, right? There's IoT, there's point of sale data. And how do you bring that all together to really make sure that we're delivering a a great experience for a buyer? I mean, we've talked about this in marketing for years, that kind of one-to-one marketing. I think it was Peppers and Rogers that, that wrote that book over 20 years ago. But you see this all the time, like technology hasn't really delivered on that. So I think the CDP space is getting closer to that. And so who is your buyer? Who are the folks in that buying committee? Yeah, so it's interesting. I I think we definitely see, and I like that you use the term buying committee because it's definitely a committee. We usually have somebody that's the head of marketing, CMO, VP of marketing, sometimes chief digital officer. Then we will also have IT. And then we will often have somebody that's in a, I think it's a new role that we're seeing more and more where it's it's kind of an evolved marketing operations type of user, somebody that's very well-versed in data science. You have kind of like the business unit owner versus the chief data or head of data person. You have the CIO who is going to oversee some level of technology implementation. Who's the one using that on a, on a day-to-day basis? Is it more on the business unit side or more on like the data side or more on the tech side? I'd say it's more a mix of the tech and data side. And it it depends on on the industry because you can imagine a lot of uh, organizations, even we have seen some customer success as well. It's really any team that's going to be touching customer data. But I would say primarily more a marketing role, but somebody that's very technical. So data science on a marketing team is is our primary user. Yeah. So, and I guess to expand on that a little bit. The fact that we have data scientists on our marketing team now is kind of crazy to begin with. This isn't something that we used to have back in the day. And obviously tools like Telium are are why that's so important because of obviously every marketer now has to be fluent in data in some form or fashion. I guess maybe like fluent adjacent. No, have someone on their team that's fluent for sure. And so I'm curious like that persona, what inning are we in 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 this data marketer type role inside of these companies that we're talking about? Yeah, well, I would say definitely it's a lot more advanced, I would say, on on the consumer or the B2C side of things. Like a lot of, just again, because let's just take retail, for example, a lot of those organizations, just the volume of customer data that they're dealing with hitting their website, it's very, very different than than we see typically in the B2B world. So data science there has been a role, I would say maybe we're in the fourth inning, but overall, I think we're very, very early on. And, and, and I would use this kind of analogy. I think when I got into the marketing automation space, I'd say in 2012, 
there were not really marketing ops people. There were not rev ops yeah. people. And you've seen a lot of companies really talking about that as it's a critical part of an organization today. And I think we'll see that more where there will be these technical marketing roles that not only look at all types of customer data, do analysis, it's kind of an interesting hybrid. There is so much more data. And I think the key is making sense of it. Having data is not the problem. It's getting insight and understanding it. You and I were talking before we started rolling here about when you worked at, at Marketo and with our good buddy Chandar, who we've had on the show and is an advisor of my company, and talking about like Marketing Nation and back in the day about how there was this upswell and community and all this stuff. Is there like a a data-driven marketing community on the rise here? Is that something that is coming? Because it seems like Definitely, you know, colleges are teaching how to be a data-driven marketer five years ago. So it seems like the skill set is brand new to the market. It is. And if you think about a lot in marketing, a lot of it is not really taught in school. I think I think people are still back on like the four P's, right? And I think there's some more forward-looking schools that are teaching like marketing automation, Salesforce, like some, some of those types of tools. But I absolutely think it's an area that we'll see a lot of growth in. And just in my time at Telium, which is just over two years, I've already seen that that change a lot and grow. Just And I, I equate it very similarly to what we saw with marketing operations and then how that's even evolved into revenue operations. But I think for me, if you just take a step back, marketers at the end of the day, they're really smart. They're just busy. <laughs> and so they need systems and tools and people that, that can make their lives easier and, and, and more efficient because we all want to go home and eat dinner with our families. And so I, I think that role will grow because people want more insights from the data. Like I said, I feel like the data is there, but I don't think a lot of organizations really take advantage of it, at least what I see. If you could wave the magic wand, I'm putting you on the spot here, but if you could wave the magic wand and say like, this is the title for this person going forward. Is it like a head of marketing data or what is this I person? Be, I think it could be head of marketing data, but I would say insights because I think the data is kind of maybe, again, like it's really not that interesting unless you're actually getting the intel from it. Because I think, and this even was true when I was at Marketo, everyone was sort of was asking for using AI and machine learning to say, what's the next best piece of content that I should be offering up somebody? Because think about your demand gen teams now, they do most of that as it happens manually, right? Or sure. go back and look in data and say, wow, people love this, therefore they must like this other thing, but it's not necessarily super scientific. So I think that that's something we'll see change. And I do think that often B2C leads the way in a lot of these areas, and it probably will bleed more over into B2B. I, I think it, we're already seeing that a bit. So how do you structure your organization to, to go after these accounts? Yeah. So so for us, I'll, I'll take a step back just for your listeners. We sell into very large enterprise B2C brands. So this is not, um, we're not selling something that's $20 where it's massive inbound and I'm just spending ton on, on digital just to make all that happen. So I think first and foremost, again, because you have a demand gen audience, know the business you're in, <laughs> number one, because I think I see a lot of times people are like, oh, I worked at a company that was big on inbound. And it's copy paste. So don't do that. <laughs> make, make sure you understand your business. So for us, we do a lot of account-based marketing. Again, because we're pursuing key accounts, we know the industries and we know on a name basis who we want to go after. And so my team is structured. It's very simple. I have a revenue leader. I have a corp comms leader. And then I have a product marketing leader that also has sales enablement. My revenue leader, we also have SDRs. 
So I've, I've kind of kept those three pillars. That's how I had things organized at other roles. We did it that way at Marketo, and I think it works very well. Now, what you put underneath those people is that can be debated, but that's kind of how I have the team structured. So our revenue team, we basically have centers of excellence underneath that. So that we have a MOP center of excellence, we have digital center of excellence that multiple teams will, will leverage those, those folks. And I would also highlight globally as well. We're, we're a pretty big company globally. So as you came into the role and built that stuff out, was that something that obviously this is in your first time being a CMO? Is that stuff that, that you had come in, know that this is how you wanted to structure it? Obviously, I'm sure you came in and looked at the organization and listened and did all the, did all the normal stuff and then said, okay, this is the way that an enterprise SaaS solution that, that is selling to this type of very senior, large type company with a large buying committee, ABM, all that sort of stuff. I'd imagine coming from Engage, you, know, you were pretty dialed in on all that. Yeah. So for me, I, I would say that was an advantage. And I think a lot of the work that we did when I was at Marketo was around sort of like organizational structures. We actually wrote a lot about different marketing teams and what they can look like. So I will say when I joined Telium, the organization was pretty flat. There was not a lot of specialization. We had a lot of folks that did many different things, which it, to me, that's great. I think when your company is a certain size, yeah. that's the other thing I highlight. If you're a small organization, say you've got like your 10 million ARR, you don't need tons of levels. That just doesn't even make sense. And it slows you down. And I'd actually argue against it. But I think for us, we're over hundred million ARR. We're global. For us, it's the growth is there. It was really about scale. So to me, that's another piece is kind of know the phase of where your business is at. So you can determine the right organizational structure because you don't want to add a lot of layers if you don't need to. But for us, it was about specialization and efficiency. So, and those two things can go together. <laughs> it, it could sound counterintuitive to some people, but, but I did know what I wanted to do. And I had to, by the way, I had to make the argument for it. I, I think a lot of companies you, you go in and they're like, wow, we haven't had this. We've had Mark over there do all these things for two years, but you have to make the argument why those changes are important and how they can impact the business. Let's get to our next segment, the playbook. This is what's great about sports. This is what the greatest thing about sports is. You play to win the game. Hello? You play to win the game. This is where you open up that playbook and talk about the tactics that help you win. What are three channels or tactics that are your uncuttable budget items? Ooh, uncuttable. So I think for us, this is one that I've seen, especially recently with the pandemic. We do some really nice high tailored virtual event experiences, almost like a field event, but they happen virtually. And we're starting to do some of those in person, uh, depending on our audience and if they're okay with that. And I think for us in enterprise selling, we, we include customers and people that we're hoping to sell to. And I think the combination of that is has been incredible for, for not necessarily a huge investment that goes a very very long way. That's number one. Number two, I think something that we've invested a lot in, and this might, I hope this makes sense to people as content. I think having a point of view, especially in a market that is competitive, and then obviously figuring out all the different ways to distribute that content and honing in on what works for us was something we spent time on. But for me, I felt like we were just, when I joined Telium, some of the basics were missing, like, hey, if you're going to adopt a CDP, what does your team need to look like? What are the use cases? So I think content, and then I would say the channel that we, we've seen some good success with is just some of our paid digital channels. I'm just being very honest. Those have worked very, very well for us. 
I would say an area we cut back on were some of the big, massive trade shows. I mean, and some of that we just did, obviously, because of the pandemic, but I, I haven't seen tons of loss from doing that. And then three, this might be interesting for folks is we've used in-app to do a lot of marketing to our customers that has been very, very good for demand gen. So I think many of your listeners, they're not just marketing to net new, but also for customers. So we use a tool called Pendo and we've rolled out some programs using that that have been awesome and very cost effective, but, but great for driving revenue. Okay. So a lot to unpack there. I love all of it. You mentioned the first thing being these events, any tips or stuff that you've seen that surprised you with how, yeah. how well those bespokes smaller digital or now not even as digital small batch events? So one thing that surprised me is we we had two types. We had a type where we had an analyst speak and it was a little bit more like educational. And then we had another format that was more just like get to know Telium, meet other customers. And we might do a whiskey tasting or a wine tasting or some sort of like food preparation. And actually the, the, the less educational ones did much better. People really seem to enjoy it. And it's interesting. Like I think a lot of folks forget this and it's a simple thing in marketing, but people like to buy from people that they, they know and, and they have some sort of relationship with. And I think it was a good way for folks that were evaluating us to see what we're like as a company and also meet some of our customers. So that works really well. And, and, and I would say that just again, for everybody listening in marketing, what's hard is you have to see how everything goes as the time changes too, right? So we're getting out of the pandemic a bit, hopefully. And now I'm seeing more people want to do more in person because everyone's a little bit zoomed out. So it's it just when you feel like you have your playbook, it changes. Well, you know, what's so funny about that is I think it's been really hard to meet people over the last couple of years because of obviously everything going on. And I think that people, because we lost all of our events and those were all kind of awkward and there's all sorts of stuff that go into those type of virtual events. So those small batch things allow you to do a little bit of that networking that you didn't get mm -hmm. to really do and meet some people. And, and like you said, just learn who that community is that you might not have access to. We see this all the time in, in the podcast that we've created when we have multiple guests on and stuff. People are always asking like, hey, let me get your email address. Would love to chat with you. And, you know, that sort of stuff. It's way more memorable and it's way more engaging. And it's actually really fun. I've actually been surprised myself, the events that I, we actually have one today that's a customer event and everyone just has the best time. It's great. And I think it gives just a little more energy to everyone's day, <laughs> which is needed. So I'm curious when you do things like that, are you inviting different folks in that buying committee that we talked about for different types of events? So like for, for lack of a better, you know, kind of thing here, one event you do for, I don't know, chief data officers maybe, and one you would do for your core kind of buying persona, one you would do for someone on the marketing team or whatever, like, is that how you're kind of thinking about it? Are you cross pollinating? Yes, we, we actually, so for us, and again, I, I think maybe different things work for different folks, but for us, we try to put the same types of buyers in a room together. So it, just as an example, you probably see this in marketing, like I could be in a marketing meetup and, and if I'm with CMOs from big consumer brands, they have very, very different challenges than I might have. Yep. So we, we try to always do sort of the whole birds of a feather idea. And also we uh, try to pair industries as well too. So again, like if you're in financial services, you're in marketing, there's certain things that are very top of mind for you that might be very different than if you're in travel hospitality. So that's something that that I think has worked really well for us. And, and also if you can get in somebody that's a thought leader in that space, that's like, 
like, hey, we, we've seen this. These are some trends you should be aware of. Everybody's appreciative of that. But we have not done as many events where we have necessarily the buying group all there together from different companies. Because again, I think what's interesting to somebody in IT, it's not the, it's not the same as, as what's interesting to somebody in marketing. For sure. For sure. <laughs> Do you have any don'ts, any things that you're like, oh, we tried this and this just yes. doesn't really work? Yes. I think this is one that I've learned. I've seen this at Marketo. I've seen this at Telium. There are instances where you think somebody that who is kind of your educational speaker is 100% the way to go. And I think it's very important to see how people speak, regardless of their credentials ahead of time, which I know sounds obvious, but I think a lot of people are like, well, no, like, of course, you know, so-and-so is going to be great. And believe it or not, in some cases, that's not always the case. They can be maybe a little more shy, or maybe they say things that you're like, wow, maybe that was something you should have kept inside and not said out loud. <laughs> it's like internal voice, right? And so I can think of a few examples in particular where you see it, it's happening and it's like, wow, I wish we had done more vetting ahead of time. That's so interesting. I think that so often, and this is very true with virtual events in general, is if the content could just be on demand somewhere, whether that's like a podcast or a webinar or whatever, then just do it like that. Create on-demand content for people. Mm-hmm. If the if the utility of the event is actually being able to be there and engage with other people or engage with the host, then make it all that, right? Either, you know, either make it an AMA and just have it be like a free conversation where, hey, we brought on this super cool, whatever, data author, just fire questions at her for an hour from every which way, but just skip the presentation, you know? Right. And another learning that, that I've had that I think is, will sound obvious when I say it is sometimes people that study things in theory, they're not always the folks that are going to have the most practical tips, right? Like there are people that might say, wow, you know, I've built all these models or I think all about demand gen, but they haven't had the pressure of a CRO coming to them saying, look, we need to get the numbers up in the next two weeks. What's your plan? They're very different things. So I think that there's definitely feedback I've received where folks almost get more talking to other either peers in their space or other customers who, who've experienced what they have, they really see a lot of value there. It's it's also why we put practitioners on on all the shows that, that we create here at Caspian, because it's like authors can help synthesize certain amounts of information. They can provide really helpful information in that way, but unless you're kind of in there in the trenches. You mentioned one of the things that that's not work that you kind of cut that you didn't really miss was trade shows. What do you think your strategy is going to be going forward then? For sure. Yeah. And I and I would say, to be clear, I'm not anti-trade show. I think there's definitely great reasons for doing them. But I think, and I just have experienced this a lot where people, before you know it, you're like, wow, our company is going to 100 trade shows this year. And like, exactly. Are, yeah. Are really getting value from all those. Can people really staff those and, and do the full plan that we want? And so... I think it's always a balance. And I think some in-person is great. It's, it's really hard to, to do everything virtually. I, I know sales loves to have conversations live. We all like to meet people and, and have that experience or go to dinner. And so I think for us, we, we are going to do live events for sure this coming year. But I, I think my view is I just want to be selective. I don't want to do every event that's under the sun because there's just no way that we can successfully scale that. And that's what I think a lot about. It's like, it's an opportunity cost. I think your sales team's always like, we've got to be there because so-and-so it's like, do we? Because last time we were there, the data didn't really support that that was that great of an event for us. And so 
I think it's being comfortable in kind of knowing what's right for the business. And that doesn't mean everything. Yeah. I mean, I think for the first time we are really taking a look at just travel in general and anything that requires a ton of resources to go be in person. We just started kind of saying like, okay, well, if we're going to go do that thing, let's go whatever. Let's go be the platinum diamond sponsor. Let's send our whole company there. Let's get everybody on the ground. We want every single person to talk to 15 Tillium people or something like that. And then at this other event, we're just going to send no one and or whatever, you know, let people who are local buy them passes or whatever. Not not to say one one is is right or wrong, but I, I agree we 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 often tried to do everything in the old world. It's and it's not the move. I mean it's like your teams will burn out, you'll burn out. And often it's like when you look at the data, it's it's not everything, right? You can kind of start to see like, hey, there's probably a select set of things you're doing that are really great. And to get that incremental growth, sure, you've got to do some of the other things. It's like a stock portfolio. You can't just invest in one company. But I think it's just kind of figuring out that mix and being comfortable saying, hey, maybe we're not going to do that. But here's this other amazing thing that we can do that's going to help you. So I think that's kind of how we try to handle it. But yeah, we're, we're definitely not going to attend every trade show under the sun. You mentioned a few things that weren't working. Can you just go into just any of the other things that you're like, eh, maybe I'm not investing in these over the next year or two? Yeah, I think the main thing for me is that I would tell people like when you're picking any channel, just know where your audience is. And I know that seems obvious, but I think even in social, you often see people say, oh, we've got to do LinkedIn, Facebook, TikTok, you name it. But if your audience isn't there, maybe that doesn't make sense. So I think before you even think about channels and tactics, I always think, make sure you know who you're marketing to, who you're trying to engage with and where they are, and then how they prefer to be communicated to. So for us, I'll be honest and say some of the things that haven't worked great. We actually have been trying to do a lot more with our customer base, because for us, I think a huge way I think to grow, especially in SaaS, is making sure you're doing effective customer marketing strategies. And that's retention, cross-sell, all the good things that we know there. And we put out a newsletter that was not good. (laughs) It was not successful. And And there's great newsletters out there. I think ours needed some work. It just wasn't hitting the mark. And so for me, I think the other thing that's easy to do for a lot of marketing teams is you get something running and everyone just kind of keeps it moving without looking at data and saying, does this really make sense for the effort? And so that's another one. And and, and a newsletter in and out of itself, it's like, it's all how good the content is, right? Is, Is it hitting the mark? And I think ours in this particular instance wasn't. So we had to go back and we're revisiting that right now. So I think that's just one example of something where we we just didn't get it right from a messaging and content perspective. That's such a great point. There's a newsletter that I subscribe to that used to be my absolute favorite newsletter from a company. And they, what they, they changed it up. And now instead of doing this one deep dive article, they do like three or four that they drop in with links. And now I never read it. And it's like one of those things we're so busy and we have so little time. And it's like, I just want one thing to be one thing, right? Very often. And I'm like, I'm not going to read four articles. And I think that a lot of times we hope that we're like, well, if we put out four articles and then people are going to self-select into the different stuff that they're doing. But if the data doesn't show that people are doing that, maybe just give them the content without trying to get them to click out, to go to your blog or to do whatever it is. Just focus on making that asset great. 
right? Like more is not more, right? And, and I think that a lot of marketing teams get caught up in that where it's like, oh, we have to do this, we have to do this. Or like, you're right, like the newsletter, let's add 10 more things to it. And, and I think the thing that I always like to ask my team is when's the last X that you've done? You know how everyone in, in meetings is like, let's do a webinar. <laughs> well, why not? And my question to people is when's the last webinar you've sat through and spent time on it and what made it special, right? So just trying to make sure that we're always thinking about how busy people are, it's an honor that they give their time to you. And so you, you need to make sure it's high value and you're hitting the mark with the message. That's like the number one thing. And then, and then figuring out the channels that they're in and, and social, like I said, is a great one to do tests because some people like B2B LinkedIn's amazing, right? That could work really well. But I know that in some cases there's other great channels that people are experimenting with and seeing success. You, you just always have to be kind of watching and testing things too. Uh, a while ago we had a guest on and uh, I'll always remember this. And they were like, the average likes per post on, I think it was like Twitter or Facebook or whatever from a company is like, I think four or five. And so it's like, usually it's, this. It's their mom, the social person's mom. I like it. My child's doing that. <laughs> yeah. So it's like, and the average, you know, social marketing team is like four or five people. So it's like your whole team isn't even liking your posts, let alone your whole marketing team, let alone right. like people in your company. So it's like. Why are you so focusing on building up your Facebook page? Right. But see, that's the kind of question people just should ask. And it's okay. It's like, I, I think in marketing, don't take things personally, right? It's like, just look at the data. And, and also you have to use your common sense. Well, data is not always going to be perfect, but let that guide a lot of your decisions. And if you're not seeing engagement on something like we were, we were not on our newsletter. Let's not perpetuate that. Let's make some changes. Do you think companies should spend as much time on their Twitter handle and Facebook and Instagram and all that stuff? Well, I think it depends on the company, but I will say this. I think that's today. People are, are so digital. They're so online. That's where you're learning about things, right? And I happen to notice a lot of executives are on Twitter. I notice a lot of people are on LinkedIn and I think it just, it depends who you're trying to reach in the message. And I, and so I think in a way it's also short form content. So people get a sense very quickly of, Hey, I like this company or I don't, you know, you see some of the fast food brands on Twitter, like Taco Bell or Wendy's. I mean, they're hilarious. And I think it's fast food, but they're creating an affinity for their brand. So I think, again, you just have to do testing and see what works for you. But I think it's definitely worth trying. I mean, I actually, something I'm excited about is some of the newer channels like TikTok. And, and you could say, wow, that's just for kids or, but there are people that are doing more tutorials on TikTok that are being, they're being received very well and it's fun. So I just think you always have to have some part of your budget and time where you're experimenting. So I think exactly what you just said is right, which is come up with the actual content and then find the channel that you want to share, right? If you have a really interesting, whatever, I'll say like a 10-part a listicle that you want to do every week or something like that, that's a perfect thing to, to share on Twitter, right? But the idea of like, I'm going to build a Twitter page just to build a Twitter page is, exactly. is that's, that's the fallacy, right? It's like, it go try to find the right content for the medium, the content that only you have that you can share that is unique or whatever. And then the other thing is use the channels to engage, right? Use Twitter to engage, use LinkedIn to engage. Don't just push, 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 push. That's the beauty of those, right? 
Exactly. And it's a great way to get a sense of people's sentiment towards you too, like the comments, or even if there's no comments at all, that's telling you something, right? So I think that that's really important is making sure that you're clear on the, the message and, and the content first, and then recognizing that it's going to be different for those channels, even just the small set that we just went through, right? The way I would post on LinkedIn is different than maybe a Twitter, right? And I think uh, appreciating that. Okay. Do you have a favorite campaign that you've run over the past couple of years? Yes. You know, I, I have one that, that I, I was proud of. And, and this is one thing that I will say for me, a favorite campaign is a campaign that produced results. I think that I've run creative campaigns that are interesting, but maybe uh, the results weren't, weren't quite as strong. But we have a partnership with some tech partners and with some of the third party cookie loss that's gone on, a lot of big brands were worried about their attribution. And so we ran a campaign around that, around first party data and some of the solutions that we had there. And within, gosh, with just a few months, we saw not only a huge uptick in meetings, but we saw lots of pipeline that was closed one and the velocity of the deals was, was much faster. So what I was excited about is not only was this great for early stage and creating interest, again, going back to the right message and having that honed in for the right person, but our sales team actually was able to, to use it to create more urgency, which is great. Because a lot of companies, especially in enterprise deals, it's like, that's the issue, right? It's like, how can we improve that velocity? And, and that worked really well. And the way we did that was through first creating a great piece of content, having a strong point of view, working with our partner channels, making sure that we did things that I think were very tactical, like how can we make sure that we're meeting with those other partner teams, going through accounts and, and being that tactical, and then making sure that we did a lot to educate the market on something that many people are still very confused about. It's a, it's a hard and evolving topic. And so our view is like, look, we're not selling you anything. We're just offering, here's what you need to be thinking about. This is what you should be planning for. And here's some, some tactical solutions you can do now. Because I think a lot of people took the approach of like very fear-based, like, oh no, third-party cookie loss, scary. And for me as a market, I'm like, no, <laughs> I don't need that. Like, I don't need another problem. I've got plenty. So give me some, get, help me get educated and give me some solutions. So I think that was our strategy with that. It worked very, very well. That's awesome. The third-party cookie piece is, is just one of the, I mean, it's going to be one of the most fascinating things in like, yeah, mm -hmm. probably marketing history at this point, but that's, that's a great, what a great response and a great way to, to, uh, to engage. Let's get to our next segment, the dust up. Uh-oh, here comes trouble. You may have heard that there was a dust up involving yours truly. And now we've got a wild scrum with fights breaking out all over the place. And it is getting really ugly as we've got punches and kicks. This is where we talk about healthy tension, whether that's with your board, your sales teams, your competitor, or anyone else. Have you had a memorable dust up in your career? Oh, who in marketing hasn't? That's how I'd answer that question. Right. <laughs> and I think that that we always want to be the type of individuals, right? That you're you're you want to partner with, with obviously like all the different roles in your company, your CFO, your CEO. But I, I think that there are times when you have to have a strong viewpoint. And, and I would say I absolutely have had those moments. I've learned a lot from from them. And the one thing I can, because I, I want to offer your audience, I'd say some advice on this. It's you always want to come to like an understanding of where the other party is coming from. And I think everyone in marketing has sometimes been guilty of saying, hey, I need more headcount. I need more money. But you have to be able to back that up in terms that make sense for those roles. 
and that it supports the business. And I think I've been guilty of that historically. I, I, I will say at my time at Marketo, our budgets, we were expected to grow very aggressively and the budgets kind of kept shrinking in, in marketing because we were supposed to get more efficient. And from a business standpoint, that's great. And then we want that. And I think that I learned in that role how to be more data-driven to highlight if I'm given X, I can not only deliver 9X back, but maybe even 11. So just making the right arguments. But I definitely think that that was something I learned. And I the mistake was not using the right terminology. How do you view your website? So to me, our website, and this is this is my own personal thing. I think a lot of people will say, oh, it's a website lead source. And I don't view your website really as a lead source. I'll start with that. <laughs> um, I think your website is is almost your the front door to your house. It's how do people know what you're about? It, it's really that, that one of the first brand touch points that somebody's going to experience. Is it clear what you do? Do I have a positive feeling when I go to that site? And then ultimately, I view it as people are going there no one's just there to hang out. <laughs> People are going there because they, they they really need to answer a question. They want to find something. So are you making that easier? So to me, your website is incredibly important. And, and I would say, I just talked to somebody else about this the other day. I think the hardest thing for a lot of companies is it's a little bit set it and forget it. And with a website that is the absolute opposite of what you should be doing, you, you need to make sure that you're looking at your data, it, somebody on your team looking at pages. Nobody wants the 404 error, <laughs> which every so often your friend will send you and it's like, oh gosh, nobody caught that one. So something I tell my team, like that's our digital team, I'm like, we're meeting on it weekly. I want to look at performance. I want to make sure that pages are, are up and running and we're not perfect. I mean, I, I think it's, I aspire to always be better, but your website's incredibly important, whether you're an inbound model or ABM or it's who you are as a company. Let's get to our final segment. Quick hits. These are quick questions and quick answers, just like conversational marketing with Qualified. Go to qualified.com to learn more about Qualified. They're the best because Qualified prospects are on your website right now and you can talk to them quickly with Qualified quick and easy, just like these questions. Heidi, are you ready? I'm ready. Always ready. Number one, what hidden talent or skill is not on your resume? Uh, I think that I'm very, very funny. And I think that's <laughs> my skill. I agree. You have a fan. Do you have a favorite book or podcast or TV show or something that you've checked out recently? Yes. I really actually love, and this is a little nerdy, but I love Jason Lemkin's Saster. Um, I just think that his stuff is awesome. I always learn something from it every single time. He's the best. Absolutely. Hands really down. People, I mean, of course, yours is amazing as well. Too. <laughs> I have to add that to the list. But I just think for people, if you're in SaaS, it's like a must, must see. Yeah, I interviewed Jason a couple of years ago. And I mean, we literally turned on the mic and he just let it rip for like an hour straight. And I was just like, my goodness, he has un bridled energy. He does. It's great. And he talks to a lot of different folks in SaaS. So it's like, a, it's almost like a free education every time you listen to, to one of the podcasts. Yeah. Quick story on this. So it's funny. He was like, I was asking like, do you have any regrets? And he was like, yeah, I shouldn't have sold. He's like, if you looked at what Echo Sign did in revenue is if you just look at the competitive landscape, we were like number one in our category we would have been at 300 million in, in ARR at that point. He's like, yeah, he's like SAS compounds. It's always the number one rule. I should have never sold. And I just thought that that was such an interesting point for like marketers to think about, which is like, like 
this compounds. So there's a reason why, you know, Salesforce invested 50% of their money in sales and marketing year after year after year after year, because smart money invested wisely compounds. Absolutely. And sometimes it's best just to hold the course. I think a lot of people, especially now, we're very kind of instant gratification world. And I just think in marketing, sometimes the best thing is just be consistent when you know, obviously something is working, but I think a lot of times people are tempted to make changes so fast or just not hang in there. And some of the best things that I've seen, it's like you just hold tight and it ends up working out very well. Yeah, I agree. I always use the Dos Equis most interesting man in the world as a great example of that of like, it's one of the best ad campaigns ever. And there's ever. no reason to ever end it, right? Who knows what happens behind the scenes, but they, they should have run that for 50 years. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's no reason to ever end when you've created a property like that. No, we need the most interesting woman in the world to join him. For real. That would be good. There we go. And that's maybe Telium is going to product partnership with, with Dos Equis. That'd be fun. Do you have a non-marketing hobby that sort of maybe indirectly helps make you a better marketer? Uh, you know, I have lots of hobbies because we're on the planet to do more than just work. I would say too that I love, I'm a pretty high energy person. So I really love hiking and I actually love road biking. So I road bike every morning. I get up early and do it. That's when I actually work through a lot of things that are bothering me. If I'm struggling with a problem, I find that I work through it that way the best. What advice do you have for a first time CMO trying to figure out their demand gen strategy? First time CMO trying to figure out your demand and uh, definitely have a strategy, start there. Uh, I sometimes <laughs> am amazed at how many people do not have one and understand what your bookings goals are, have a plan there. But I would say that also the simplest advice is work closely with your CFO, very, very closely on the goals, your budget, and make sure that you're speaking the same language because a lot of people make that mistake. So, hey, if you are able to give me a dollar, I can give you back 10. And I think having those kind of conversations, keeping your metrics, uh, you might have more for your team, but keep it very simple with them, but make sure you speak in their language. Heidi, this has been amazing. Thanks so much for joining the show. For our listeners, go to telium.com to learn more. If you're in financial services or healthcare, retail, sports and entertainment, travel, hospitality, go check them out, telium.com. Heidi, any uh, final thoughts, anything to plug? Yeah, I have one other thing to plug in. And yeah. I would say for everyone listening in marketing, just remember that we're all in the PR, not the ER. So I think lately I, I see, I've been on a lot of calls, people seem stressed at the end of the day, this is fun stuff. And so just remember that, like when things get a little bit crazy, yeah, we're fine. We've got this. I love it. And I could not agree more. Thank you, Heidi. Thank you. Demand Gen Visionaries is brought to you by our friends at Qualified.com, a conversational marketing company that's on a mission to transform the way B2B companies sell. Go to Qualified.com to learn more.